Area 941 podcast are produced and distributed by Community Powered 94.1 KPFA Radio. Please help support Area 941 at kpfa.org. This is the Area 941 Radio Walensky Podcast. I'm Richard Walensky, and we're talking about books, about theater, about film, about television, and from time to time, even about KPFA, Pacifica Radio. Richard Schickel, who died on February 18, 2017, at the age of 84, spent 45 years as film critic for Time magazine. Over his lifetime, he wrote 36 books, most of them about film, and produced and directed 34 documentaries. I had an opportunity to interview Richard Schickel in 2003 while he was publicizing Good Morning, Mr. Zip, 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 Movies, Memory, and World War II. In the book, he discusses his early love of movies and, more importantly, the movie as propaganda element during World War II. The interview occurred at the height of the invasion of Iraq and, of course, we compared notes on propaganda. This was not a book that somebody contracted me to do and it was uh, their idea or something of that kind. It was something I wanted to do. Memory is a funny thing, isn't it? I mean, movies to me are as much a part of my past and my sensibility as, uh, you know, playing baseball in the corner lot. It, it all is a oneness for me. You know, uh, those movies were very vivid. They were obviously very shaping because of the profession I eventually adopted. Then as I started processing those memories, I began to get into somewhat abstract realms. That is to say, I was increasingly interested in the way those movies worked on me and others of my generation in terms of shaping my opinions, almost the way I am in the very fiber of my being. So... That was the part that perhaps surprised me the most in writing the book, that my, my desire to just take up some of these abstract issues. Death and its representation in movies, uh, the way they propagandistically talked to us and the ways that propaganda had a permanently shaping effect on the way I think about the world. I understand it's somewhat a messy book if you have a narrow definition of what a memoir is. But on the other hand, as I say in there somewhere, quoting Jimmy Cagney, that's the kind of hairpin I turned out to be. One of the stronger areas that you deal with is the nature of propaganda and the roles it played in World War II. Uh, and reading mm -hmm. that thread weaving through the book, I, I kept mm -hmm. keep being reminded of the nature of propaganda today. I mean, we're dealing with oh, yeah. probably <laughs> the most propagandistic government I can recall in America. Me too. I to you about that completely. What they have that previous wartime governments didn't have, they had it for the first Gulf War. They had this incredible medium, television, which, you know, they can mobilize and can control in ways that it, uh, they couldn't control, say, the movies or, say, the radio even. I mean, you know, you don't take your camera into Iraq without permission. You understand, I think, that that permission can be rescinded at a moment's notice if you step out of line. So they have a huge, huge advantage over government propagandists, let's say, in World War II. There was an Office of War Information. They made very heavy-handed 
suggestions to Hollywood about how the war was to be portrayed, what issues might and might not be taken up in movies, all of that. But this is an nth degree over what the government could assert in the course of World War II. In addition, these days, the level of sophistication is so much greater. No one would think of uh, certain kinds of subtle propaganda that we saw, say, if you bothered watching Fox News. I mean, once you embed, to use the current phrase, in a um, combatant unit, uh, you're in a different realm of country than, say, Ernie Pyle wandering from unit to unit, nobody quite being sure what he was going to file back home. The pictures are there. They're instantaneous. Uh, You can track them, and you can do what you will with somebody who isn't following the party line. Sure. I mean, it's a big difference. I mean, what happened in World War II... The Office of War Information had a hold on Hollywood in the silver nitrate. The basic film stock was a war material. It was, in a sense, rationed, and they could say, well, well, I'll let you have some silver nitrate if that's the movie you're going to want to make. So basically didn't make certain kinds of movies or made certain kinds of movies within very narrow parameters. It was the way the enemy was presented. It was the way we were presented as fighting against those enemies. There were certain silences, notably about the Holocaust, that occurred in movies at that time, and that was at least partially, and I think majorly, the function of government talking to Hollywood. You discuss the racism in World War II films, particularly how the Germans, the Europeans, appear Mm. to have some kind of temporary insanity. You know, the idea of the very, very cultured, evil German... Whereas the Japanese were not quite pictured that way. That goes beyond the Office of War information. I mean, you know, people running the war at its highest level uh, had the notion that the Japanese, to start with them, were not fully civilized human beings. They were racially different, obviously. They could be presented almost animalistically uh, in the movies. And in fact, they did, frequently referred to as monkeys in war movies. They had no redeeming civilized qualities. The Germans, who were perpetrating at least as big a war crime, I mean, we mustn't forget the Japanese were particularly brutal opponents, and they had a terrible record on the continent of Asia in terms of things like the rape of Nanking, which was a, a serious war crime. The Germans, on the other hand, were the country of Goethe and Schiller and Beethoven. And yes, there was this temporary uh, Nazism, but, you know, they were part of, how to put it, Western culture. And they could not be animalized in the way that the Japanese were. Certainly what you have to say about the Nazis is the Japanese war crimes didn't tend to be systematic. The German war crime, the Holocaust, the death camps, that was a systematic government policy. I'm not going to sit here and try and say, well, one guy was guiltier than the other guy. But uh, there was plenty of guilt to go around, including on our side. The minute aerial warfare reaches a certain level of sophistication, we're just going to bomb the bejesus out of civilians, the damage we did over Dresden and Hamburg and so forth is is, uh, in some way unconscionable. I mean, you know, most of the people underneath those mass bombings, you know, were not people necessarily engaged in war work. They were not even necessarily people who have to be engaged in guilt over the Holocaust. They're just ordinary citizens. But 
they were mindlessly bombed by people who had it in mind to do one thing, to terrorize the population. So from that point onward, there will always be uh, guilt because of the nature of aerial warfare and bombing at the in levels of intensity we unleashed. Richard Schickel, when you're making these statements about you know racism or something else I want to get mm-hmm. into, which is um, when you call it uh, a haunted screen, were they perceptions that you had prior to seeing all these films again, or did you see patterns emerge? Yeah, you're right. I, I began to perceive these patterns. Now, look, I was a little kid watching these movies the first time around. You know, I had a little kid's sensibility. I mean, in other words, wow. You know, bombs, explosions, uh, daring do, heroism, uh, grand speeches. I mean, all that stuff is very appealing to a 9, 10, 11, 12-year-old kid. I mean, uh, I didn't perceive anything in it but uh, glory. I mean, I had enough primitive aesthetic sensibility to, in some ways, make judgments about these movies. Well, this was better than that one, or was more persuasive than that one. You know, kids have a, a wonderful little mechanism by which they perceive fakery in the movies, you know, the special effect that doesn't come off, the fight that looks fraudulent. So, you know, that kind of primitive aesthetic judgment went into it at the time. And it's only going back to those movies and going back, having read an enormous amount about the war, it became a subject that I tend to read a great deal about to this day. I mean, uh, you know, people's memories of it, histories of it, the growing in the last 20 or 30 years, growing recognition of the Holocaust, Holocaust memoirs, more recently Holocaust movies. I'd like to discuss the, the wartime screen as a haunted screen. And it never occurred to me that one of the ways Hollywood dealt with death was to deny it by yeah. bringing back characters as ghosts. You Isn't mentioned that amazing? Yeah, you mentioned a guy named Joe, but there was a British mm-hmm. film, A Matter of Life and Death, in which oh, yeah, David sure. Niven comes back from the dead. And then you've got, what, the Fighting Sullivans, and they're all, uh, you know, kind well, of I mean, waving goodbye. Exactly they <laughs> didn't exactly come back from the dead, but they are seen in the last shot of the movie ascending to heaven and waving back cheerily <laughs> to <laughs> the folks they've left behind. There's There are other movies like that. There's soldier from a small Iowa town, a surrogate appears in that town. And uh, he's the guy who was standing next to the kid who actually becomes then the surrogate son for the grieving father. And, uh, you know, it's it's in a, a human comedy. There's a ghostly father figure that, that when the son is killed, again, a surrogate appears. Even when there wasn't a surrogate, you know, let's say it's the end of Iwo Jima or... Uh, captain of the clouds or what have you you know the person isn't quite dead to understand that his death in a heroic capacity in the war makes him immortal makes him someone that will never be forgotten because of the nature of his sacrifice this is of course designed to console people to make them feel better about the inevitable losses of war and i suppose at some level you can't object to that on the other hand you know for me as a kid I think I had a very wacky idea of what death actually meant, and that idea, I think, is traceable to these movies where people died but didn't die. Any death for a cause outside of your own selfish interests was bound to be a good death, a death that mm, might give you a little piece of immortality. 
that's not that much of a hop, skip, and jump to the end of Casablanca either. Oh, yeah. I mean, sure, Ilsa doesn't die and Rick doesn't die and all that, but, you know, their love dies. It's going to be a love that will not in the future be consummated again. It was a big problem for propaganda during the war. You had to get people used to the fact that death was in the world on an unprecedented scale. I mean, at a minimum, 55 million people died in the World War II. I mean, death on that scale had never before been experienced on this planet. And a lot of them were Americans. So we had to find ways of consoling people. And, and these are terrible deaths, for the most part young men, being cut off in the very prime of their lives. They're being cut off, you know, from love, uh, from careers, from life that we confidently expect we will live. And, and so it is a very large tragedy when you're losing young people on that scale. I don't entirely blame Hollywood, I think, or, or the media giants of the time for trying to find some way of consoling ourselves as we confronted this really brutal fact. I mean, I look at it now and I say, well, it kind of made me not quite come to grips with death until I was much older. But still, you have to say, I guess they were doing the best they could. Richard Schickel, you also uh, draw another connection that makes sense now that I think about it, which is the relationship of the communist screenwriters to the nature of the propaganda and to some degree democratizing the propaganda and bringing it down to a lower level. Now, at, at present, I'm kind of interested in watching pre-code films. Because they're quite wonderful. A lot of which have a a communist propagandistic element to them that died the day that the Breen office came down, uh, I think it was summer of 34. Yes, there were uh, obviously communists and leftists of all kinds writing those movies, but they didn't offer quite the same kind of opportunities to bring the action to a halt and give a big inspirational speech. I mean, the, the great heyday of the communist writers in Hollywood was certainly the warriors because they commanded a kind of rhetoric that the studios and the government, for that matter, liked. The most basic trope of that writing was the little guy, the ordinary little American citizen. You know, is not in his nature heroic or self-sacrificial. And he is going against this juggernaut namely the Axis powers. And yet he finds within himself the grit, the right stuff to defeat those people. And so there's a kind of a wacky celebration on the left of little guys, little man, you've done the job, little man, you are doing the job, little man, you will, when you get there, find all this good stuff in you. I don't think that's particularly harmful, you know, and from the purely political point of view. I think from an aesthetic point of view, it's, it's disastrous. But, you know, that's no reason to deny a man work a few years later because he wrote that kind of crudola. Maybe he should lose his job, but for aesthetic reasons, not political reasons. Yeah, I, I think that kind of crosses the entire spectrum. doesn't matter what you are. If you write crap, you write crap. In discussing Mission to Moscow, you talk yeah. about how communists 
or the left might have rationalized Stalin's crimes in order to be able to write things like that. Insofar as I know, at that particular time, most of the American left didn't really know about Stalin's crimes, and the people who had left the left mostly left because of the Stalin-Hitler peace pact. I find that a somewhat dubious proposition. I take it from this point of view. The purge trials, it was clear to almost everybody who followed them in the slightest these were phony trials and that they, you know, had as their aim the wiping out of any kind of opposition to Stalin. And beyond that, the Gulag was in existence and there were public protests against the Gulag in the 1920s, certainly in the early 1930s. There, you know, I've seen handbills from rallies protesting the Soviet treatment. Uh, in those days, dissidents eventually, I mean, it was anybody that the regime's paranoia focused on. So I don't really buy the argument from innocence that exculpates the left in this country. I think the purge trials, I think certainly the Hitler-Stalin pact, the invasion of Finland, all the things that are incidentally rationalized in the course of mission to Moscow were there, and I think it, it took a kind of willful blindness not to observe that. So I, I don't feel uh, any particular compunction about saying he didn't write anything that would harm anyone in this country, but you believe things that I think were harmful in this country. I'm at best ambivalent on the whole question of the HUAC hearings and all of that. I do think there was a democratic left that was an anti-Stalinist left in this country. You know, there were dozens of respectable individuals, whether it was Arthur Kessler or George Orwell or you name it, Richard Wright, who by this time were protesting, you know, the mindless Stalinism of a certain portion of the American left. Richard Schickel, you debunk the idea of uh, your generation as, or the generation slightly maybe a little bit older than you, as the greatest generation. Yeah, I think that's essentially sentimental twaddle. I mean, it's a great phrase, and all due credit to Tom Brokaw for coming up with one that would sell that many books. But I don't think there are greater and less great generations. You know, I'm not going to denigrate the sacrifices and the difficulties the generation, which was the generation ahead of mine that actually fought World War II, they came out of the Depression, which was hard enough, and went into the vastest war in human history, and they stood well in it, by and large. You know, What I object to is the notion that there was something special about that generation. I have the feeling that any generation plays the cards it's dealt, and I think any generation, mine or any subsequent one, would play those cards about as well as the alleged greatest generation. Beyond that, I have obviously a number of friends who fought in that war, and, and universally, they, you know, these guys were dog faces in, in the infantry, so they utterly poo-poo this notion. I mean, I have friends who were Jewish and fought in the war and encountered ravening anti-Semitism in the American armed forces as they fought besides prejudiced individuals. So I just don't buy the argument. That's all. I think it's historically nonsensical. Richard Chickle, as a critic for the past 38 years, do you think as a critic, a uh, film critic has a specific role in political and social scene, or, or are you basically just a re reviewer saying what you like or don't like? 
Yeah, I think there is a, an enormous number of serious movies. Not all of them by any means, and not by any means the most delightful of them. But any seriously meant movie has social, political, moral, what have you, implications. I don't think any individual movie or even a group of movies can, you know, bend the minds of the audience. But I think you have an obligation to point out to the best of your ability, you know, what the subtexts are, you know, whether it's successful in presenting a point of view. I don't believe in... Uh, a purely aesthetic approach to any art object, be it a movie or a book or anything else, a television show. Yeah, I think that's part of the job. I mean, the job is really just to kind of lead a discussion, I think. I mean, in other words, I don't believe that any review or any reviewer has inordinate influence on the public. I mean, look at As We Speak, The Matrix is getting some of the worst reviews I've seen in quite a while. That's going to do $100 million at least, probably $150 million uh, on its first weekend. You can't stand in opposition to a marketing juggernaut like that. On the other hand, it's amusing and possibly useful to point out, you know, the flaws you see in that movie and let people, you know, go have whatever kind of time, good or bad, they have with the movie. And then maybe come out and, you know, either encounter your you or recall your review and say, hey, you know, maybe you had a point or two there. Uh, I don't mean to sound cynical, but that's just the way reviewing works. But for me, it's fun because I like being in, in the middle of the discussion. And I don't mind if people don't agree with what I say or dislike what I say. I mean, I think if you don't have criticism, don't have reviewing, and those movies just kind of mindlessly flop out into the theaters, then I don't think the experience is quite as rich or interesting as it might be with a couple dozen of us who try to write seriously about movies in this country. It's also true that certain films, without the critics spending a lot of attention on them, might disappear without anybody knowing about them. Things like well, think, Monsoon yeah. Wedding or... Yeah, I think that's really part of the moral obligation of reviewing. I mean... You really do have to go to these movies, and you have to do what you can to bring them to the attention of people. Movies are a mass medium. Uh, Monsoon Wedding, which I thought was an excellent movie, by the way, needs to be brought to the attention of the thoughtful minority, who will have a good time with it and who will then look out, perhaps, for my next movie. You know, you can be very helpful in building serious careers by seriously reviewing that kind of a movie. Richard Schickel, 38 years. What's the worst piece of garbage you ever sat through to the very end? Oh, God, I can't. I really don't know. I mean, that's the downside of reviewing. You know, the, the, the typical member of the public, uh, even if he's a devoted movie person, well, you know, maybe go 10 or 12 or 20 times a year. But, you know, I and... and, and normal week, you know, go a couple of times a week to the movies and uh, often see movies on video, older movies, because I need to see them for some television program I'm making or some such. Uh, I'm immersed in movies, so I, I do think that makes my sensibility different. I mean, in the sense that I bet you I'm more tolerant of, let's say, excesses of sex and violence in the movies than a person who merely drops in on them half dozen or a dozen times a year. I mean, you know, it's kind of like, oh, that's the way they do it now. And, uh, you know, uh, I, I'm probably not as 
attuned to excess of that sort as a person who, you know, comes in just often enough to get shocked. So there is a different sensibility. Are you more willing to forgive plot holes? Yeah, I think I am. I mean, they are ostensibly a realistic medium. I mean, those are real people, and they're acting in realistic ways uh, about all sorts of issues and stories and plots and uh, and yet they're not realistic. I, I, that's part of the magic of movies, you know, that they shade over from their realistic mise-en-scene, if you will. They shade over into fantastical behavior. You know, it's sort of the way that transition is managed in a movie that makes us like the movie or not like the movie. I mean, a simple example, Casablanca. Well, I mean, you know, it's a pretty preposterous story in some ways, but it's so charmingly done, so insinuatingly done, so wittily done that, you know, you forgive it and, and you go for its particular fantastical ride. Speaking of what a critic can do and how a critic can kind of push things they've yeah. seen that no one else has, do you have a couple of movies that you can recommend uh, that people can see this summer or this fall, things that haven't necessarily come out yet? I don't, generally speaking, see movies that far ahead just because I like to write fairly freshly about the movies. I mean, and they, as a general rule, don't like to show to critics too early. However, having said that, I have seen a couple of movies that are coming out in the fall that I think very well of. One is a picture called Veronica Guerin, which is about the Irish journalist who was investigating uh, the mob in uh, Dublin and was uh, assassinated. Uh, it's uh, an extraordinarily solid, good, excellent movie. Clint Eastwood's Mystic River, which is based on a Dennis Lehane uh, novel, and it's an extraordinarily, I think, sensitive, good uh, version of that uh, book. It's about uh, a murder, the roots of which, to some degree, are traced into the very distant, deep past of three young men who uh, are involved in the current story. I think it's, it's wonderfully well acted, in particular by uh, Sean Penn. I think both of those are are going to be hit movies, but I think they're going to be movies that will be, you know, very well regarded by the critical press. I spoke with Dennis Lehane last week, and um, uh -huh. he uh, he was very very pleased with how the film came out. And I well, I just, should be. I just it's, read it's the a, book. It's by the way a beautiful adaptation of that book. I mean, I, I feel that nothing vital from it is lost, but uh, it's it shaped and pointed in a way that the book, which is kind of big and leisurely, is not. I, I, so I think it's a very good version of that uh, of that work. I get the sense that it's, uh, to that book, kind of what L.A. Confidential was to Elroy's book. Both so, although this movie is much less violent than L.A. Confidential, which is an excellent movie, by the way. And this movie is, uh, incidentally, written by one of the co-writers of L.A. Confidential, Bruce Helgeland, anyway, uh, who, who worked with Curtis Hansen on uh, L.A. Do you see any, uh, any trends, censorship, or uh, shifts in consciousness? The big shift I see in movies I don't think directly addresses those matters. But look, what's happened is that the Hollywood studio movies, you know, the big 
Hulk-like movie or Matrix-like movie, you know, has detached itself from all reality. Those movies are no longer... I mean, I don't even want to see them, basically, because they really have nothing in them that I'm interested in or want to do anything except, alas, exercise my contempt for. I mean, those movies are made for a particular audience. It's youthful, it's male, it's, you know, all the things that, that we hear about. More and more, the movies I look to and the movies that I care to write about and enjoy seeing, you know, are small movies, some of them from abroad, some of them are American independent movies. But these are the movies where that have an intellectual life to them. And what I'm contrasting here is to, say, 20, 25 years ago, a movie like Chinatown would come out. And it was meant for everybody to see. It was a great, great movie, in my opinion. Yet, you know, there was no bar to anyone seeing it. It was made for a mass audience that people thought could handle a movie of that complexity and, in certain ways, that daring. And they're not making those movies anymore. They just want to make these, you know, special effects extravaganzas. Spider-Man last year would be a good example. I think it's very, very, very difficult in that climate in this town, in Hollywood, I think it's very, very difficult to make movies of some integrity that can hope to draw a large audience to them. I mean, look, L.A. Confidential, which was a wonderful movie, was by studio standards kind of a floppadini. You know, it really didn't gross what it might have uh, in their estimation, despite wonderful reviews and a wonderful reception amongst the people who did see it. I don't like the movies going in this two-tiered direction. Uh, yeah, there's always been art movies and there's always been popular movies, but the popular movies do not have the kind of artistic aspirations that they once had. And I think that's dangerous for the movies because what it means is that a minority audience will continue going to, you know, fine movies, but they will not be seeing movies that appeal to an audience on all kinds of levels, you know, just to revert to World War II and the movies in my book. I mean, those movies we all saw. And, you know, I might enjoy Casablanca at one level. In those days, it's kind of like a sort of a nifty little espionage drama. And my parents might have enjoyed it as a ruefully romantic movie. And other people might have enjoyed it for, you know, the, the, the wit and the land of its uh, dialogue. So there was something in those movies for everybody. And you know what? There was something very artful about making a movie that everybody at some level could appreciate and enjoy. I mean, the movies of Preston Sturgis in that era would be a good example. The movies slightly after the war of, uh, in the film noir genre would have been examples of that. You know, I could enjoy it as a teenager, and older people can enjoy, you know, a sort of sexual overtones that probably were sailing over my head. I mean, I like movies as a mass medium. I think that's where the most fun and the most ambiguity is to be found in movies. This notion that a lot of the more interesting efforts uh, in the mass media are occurring on HBO, uh, I think that's there's validity in that idea. I've seen a number of movies on HBO that you would not see. I'm thinking of a movie about a year ago about the Wansi conference. Uh, oh, right. That was with, um, just, just with a Bernard, very fine, yeah. A yeah, very fine film. 
And, um, you know, in past decades, that would have been a feature film. Instead, it was made for HBO. But, you know, we are now talking, even though HBO is vast in its reach, it's still basically uh, a minority audience that's looking for something more thoughtful, something more interesting, is willing to pay the premium to catch those things on that channel. There's something else as well here, which is that when you were going to movies in 1941, 42, 43, you were stuck w- with whatever was in theaters. If a movie mm-hmm. came out in, in 1930 and had something yeah. that would keep it from being shown, you weren't going to see it. We can see everything right. now. Yes. I mean, I remember, in fact, I was talking with another old croc the other day about he had been at, at the Great Lakes Naval Training Station in the war, and he heard that in Madison, Wisconsin, there was going to be a screening of The Informer, and he was desperate. You know, he's a cineast. He was desperate to see that movie. He got on the train and went all the way to Madison to see it. And I countered that. was, I was living in the East, and I read in the New York Times, my God, this is in the early 50s. Citizen Kane is going to play for a week in a theater in New York. I said, I may never get a chance to see Citizen Kane if I don't get on the train, which I could ill afford, and go down and see it, which I actually did. I just bloody got on the train to see a movie. You know, there was that feeling that if you missed it, you were never going to see that again. We didn't know from videotape, and uh, the revival houses in those days were few and far between, as they have become again. So, you know, we're lucky in that way. We can at least see some version of a movie on our home videos, although there are hundreds and hundreds of very, very good movies that we don't see because they aren't commercially viable by the standards of the home video industry. I mean, much of the the best of, say, James Cagney's work, movies that, you know, are roughly around the period you're talking about,